You're listening to The Piano Pod, where we talk to the brightest minds in the industry about how they are bringing the piano into the 21st century. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Welcome. Yay. So, Josh and I are actually old buddies. We go way back uh, to our undergrad days. Really, really back. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just, you know, not (laughs) okay. Yeah, it's been a while. But um, back to Eastman School of Music and University of Rochester. And uh, we've had this running conversation just about as long on the state of classical music and music education. Incidentally, Josh is just an unbelievable teacher and he's always been my model since I started out as somebody who is more experienced than me and just has a a knack for it. So um, yeah, so we talked a lot about that kind of stuff. And then back in March of this year, 2021, Rolling Stone magazine published this article. Uh, It's become rather infamous, I think, with the title, Juilliard Must Modernize or It Will Disappear. And this article circulated widely among classical musicians on social media. And uh, Josh published what I thought was a really thoughtful and articulate response on Facebook, um, which I then shared and my friends picked up. A lot of people thought it was better than the original article, honestly. So we all read that and we thought we should really bring Josh on the show to talk about these things. Um, So we're gonna get into that, but first, um, so our audience gets to know you a little bit, Josh. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your musical background and how you came up because it's a little bit unusual for a classically trained musician. Yes, I am uh, a a jack of all trades uh, is a positive spin of that. Uh, And then I think a lot of times I'm just waiting for someone to discover that I'm a complete and utter fraud. Um, So we all have that. Yeah, I uh, I grew up in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, I'm the only musician in my family, but my family goes way back there. Um, actually before the founding of the country, um, which is a pretty cool thing. And, uh, so I, I grew up in a very musical place and, um, my parents were, were musical enthusiasts. Like we were always listening to music. My mom was a dancer, um, when she was younger. And so like music was a big sort of part of my, my life. And as long as I can remember, um, I was always listening to it. Uh, because my mom was a dancer, we had a piano in the house. Um, and, uh, and so I sort of just my I had an older brother and he was taking lessons um, and I was, you know, like too young to take lessons. And so um, I was just like listening to songs, um, kind of like a sponge. I was listening to songs on the radio. My parents had a big LP collection. I would just listen to songs um, and uh, and learn how to play them by ear. Um, and my musical interests were really have always been super, super diverse. Um, like I love uh pop and music and rock and blues and, and jazz. And, but I also uh, love classical and got really into classical music, um, around, you know, 10 or 11 years old, um, which is like really young, but also really late for most <laughs> classical musicians. Um, so started taking classical lessons then, um, and, uh, and learned pretty on, early on uh, that I had to like segregate or compartmentalize uh, aspects of my musicianship, like never tell my classical teacher that for instance, I didn't learn how to read like the entire first year of my lessons. Uh, I knew like what lines and spaces were. And so I would just like count up the lines and spaces to figure out the first note and be like, okay, cool. And then just start playing the piece because she would always play the pieces for me before. Um, like introducing them or I would listen to recordings uh, from the library. Um, so you're mostly playing by ear. Yeah. I mean, pretty exclusively. 
Um, and, but I, you know, eventually learned how to, how to read, um, and, uh, got really into it and, uh, like so into it that I was a, a big idiot and, um, left my, my like my junior year of, of high school, um, like, you know, had a chip on my shoulders, like I'm going to apply to colleges. And so, uh, somehow they made a mistake and let me into, uh, some great schools. And, uh, so I went to Eastman as a, as a baby, I was 16 years old when I went there, um, and found out very quickly that I knew nothing <laughs> about classical music, um, and like spent that first year uh, just just being as scrappy as I possibly could. Um, but uh, loved my experience there. Um, obviously, like immersing myself in that world for for you know four years was was deeply meaningful to me. Um, and uh and then you know uh took a little bit of time off and, and gigged uh and and eventually went back uh to eastman for my master's and kind of fell in love with teaching after doing you know 17 different things um for a couple of years and um i don't know like the the boring story is that you know like met my wife uh at eastman um and we both got jobs here and kind of made rochester our home um and uh it sort of took me teaching uh, at Nazareth College to learn how sort of silly it was that I had been compartmentalizing aspects of my musicianship for like a really long time in my life. Um, we uh, were smaller, small liberal arts school. Um, we have a pretty big school of music. We have about 300 students in our school of music. Um, we're the second biggest uh, school within the college. And um, our primary enrolling programs are uh, music therapy, music education, and music business. Um, so, uh, sort of where I fit in, um, you know, sort of my place in that college and, and a niche that I very intentionally carved out for myself, um, and, and was lucky to be supported, uh, doing that was, um, you know, we have, uh, obviously music education students who need to be able to, you know, improvise accompaniments or, um, do, uh, score reductions or, I think about my wife all the time who's like at two different schools and she maybe has her Suzuki cello book at one school and her Suzuki piano or, or a violin book in another school. And so she's constantly transposing accompaniments because, you know, she has to play them in a different key. Um, and then um, I got handed this this uh, functional piano course um, for music therapists that like really didn't have a curriculum or any required text. And they're like, we have this class that we want to do and we don't know what to do with it. And I was totally shocked that there were like zero resources available uh, to give my students. Like you could either find like, you can play pop piano too. And you'd get these super freaking lame arrangements of like the melody jammed in your right hand pinky and like completely squared out rhythms that just sound awful. Like you don't have to be a musician to know how terrible those things sound. Um, or like someone's dissertation on like, 1910 stride piano uh you know styles and so it's like there's nothing in between um that really empowers students with these skills or break down uh breaks down these elements into into sort of easily digestible and pedagogically sound approaches so i started making handouts for my students and those handouts got really long and ridiculous and eventually uh led to a book so it's sort of become a passion of mine um but uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of always been restless as a musician. This is a long story, so cut me off. I've always been restless as a musician, so uh, I'm never happy, like, sort of doing one thing. I get, I have, like, musical ADD and I get bored, so I tend to say yes to projects that are different or interesting, and then if I can't find those projects, I tend to just make them. Mm -hmm. um, so 
uh, that's kind of what I've enjoyed uh, doing throughout my career. And so that means like, like we started teaching a version of that class that I built for our graduate students, you know, four or five years ago and sort of had to retool that curriculum and um, and we're in the process of doing it for music business students and incorporating like synth and MIDI input and, um, uh, you know, uh, scoring into that curriculum too. So like, it's, it's a very cool part of my job, um, but it's sort of, you know, like, I think like a lot of 21st century musicians, like we're, we're piecing together uh, a variety of different niches um, to sort of make a living and also keep our, ourselves vibrant and interested. Yeah. Okay. A lot to respond to there. Um, Josh, first, I want to ask you, can you talk a little bit more about the book and what's in it? Because um, talking about these two extremes, right? The, the bad arrangements on the one hand and the dissertation on the other, what does functional piano mean to you and how do you teach it? Yeah. So, I mean, functional piano to me is uh, a term that, you know, certainly I didn't coin, but I've sort of taken ownership with and that it's sort of the, it's the catch-all word I use for everything that um, kind of falls outside of the realm of what has become uh, traditional classical training, right? So traditional classical training places emphasis on uh, very early on on developing uh, facility and developing reading skills, right? So your ability to manipulate an instrument uh, at a very high level and your ability to consume um, a lot of written music. Uh, so those are those are really important things and, and not that they're at all bad skills. I mean, I tell my students uh, every week practically that like I take it for granted that I can manipulate my instrument well, like like I've done the work and I can do that. I take it for granted that I can read like that's and, and that's something as a kid that I like, oh, wait, all these people are so much better at this. It's it's a skill like anything else. But I think we've kind of created this mystique around these other skills like how do I learn a song from a recording or how do I transpose or how do I learn like what are the three main elements of blues piano stylings on you know on the piano are like how can I make my pop songs sound like the recordings um so a lot of these started as like uh I mean I'll be honest like a lot of it's reverse engineering right so this is stuff that I've been doing my whole life um and just kind of do organically um, and then I would have students, I was really lucky, my undergraduate students are um, enrolled, my music therapy students are enrolled in clinical placements on campus. So they're taking my class, but then they're also going, uh, you know, uh, on campus to work with uh, a group of five-year-old uh, kids with autism, or they're working with um, uh, an adult student with aphasia, or they're working with a senior student um, with uh, uh recovering from a stroke right so they're having to to manipulate piano and guitar and their voice and use music to accomplish therapeutic goals um so they're going to their sessions mean like hey massico sorry everyone calls me massico i'm not professor massico i don't know how that <laughs> happened but it happened um so like hey massico i was doing this thing in a session and like how do you ground the blues because my student needs a really steady beat but like you know, how do I also imbue it with style? So they would just ask me a lot of questions and I'm like, I don't know, let's figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really what functional pianism is to me because it, the things that my students have to be able to do and prioritize um, in very authentic and meaningful ways um, are a very different skill set than what classical musicians, um, you know, uh, prioritize. My students have to be able to be really comfortable transposing, right? Like they'll have a student who comes in, just starts singing, our client coming in just starts singing a song in a key and they have to figure out what key that's in and play an accompaniment to it. 
um, you know, or whatever like horrendous ultimate guitar tab they get where like every second chord is wrong. They have to know how to fix that on the spot. They don't have time to prep for it. Um, they have to keep a catalog of, you know, dozens and eventually hundreds and thousands of songs in their heads. And how do you maintain that and work on that skill? Um, so those are all, you know, really sort of different uh, prioritization of skill sets. Um, they don't have to be able to uh, understand everything about classical technique or how to manipulate their instrument. You know, I'm much more interested in function over form with those students because I don't have them for very long. So yes, I would love them to play the instrument in the way that's healthiest and, and most comfortable and uh, most efficient for them, but I can't prioritize that over their ability to uh, be able to look at a lead sheet for Fly Me to the Moon and not completely freak out at what flat 13 means. You know, like right. there has to be um, that foundation for them to go on. So it's just sort of a different level of, um, of prioritization of skills. And I know that's a, a long answer, but it's one of those things that I think is uh, a little confusing at first. Sure, sure. Well, I think I could probably sum it up as functional piano is essentially practical piano skills for what these musicians need to do. Um, and there seems to be a disconnect that you're describing between the work that they do and what is traditionally taught in a classical curriculum. Now, somebody might say, okay, well, these people are training specifically to be music therapists. Is there the same disconnect for somebody that's going a more traditional route? And that's where we start to get into philosophical issues, right? Uh, which is kind of the reason we're here today. So let's uh, let's get to the article because this is a very contentious article. I think um, there's a certain consensus um, among opinions that I read anyway that it, it has its flaws. But basically, the um, the author made several stipulations, number one being that orchestras are dying because they're not profitable and they rely on donors to survive. Uh, number two, if you graduate from Juilliard with a degree, you're not guaranteed a job. In fact, a New York Times report from two, uh, 2004 tracked down the class of Juilliard from 10 years earlier and found that only 25% of them had full-time or, uh, orchestral jobs. Also, that classical schools should teach technology and business skills, um, and also that they should introduce different genres of music to their students, audiences, and donors alike, not just classical. So, Josh, tell us what you think about all this. I have way too many opinions. Uh, and That's what you're here for. Yeah, it's too early to have a couple beers in me, but I'll have even more uh, later this evening, I'm sure, when I'm thinking about this. They want to hear um, everything. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, um, there's a lot to unpack, not just in that article, but uh, that surround the assumptions made within that article. And maybe that's the thing that sort of, uh, to use a word, triggered me uh, to rant on Facebook about it. Um, you know, I, I think uh, genre plane is such a, a dumb word. And, you know, anytime classical musicians start to talk about like incorporating more styles or genres, I just I have to like hide the visible disdain that's in my face um, because and I think it comes from a good place, but it always comes from a place of looking down upon music that does not fit a very narrow definition um, of what uh, uh, great music is, you know. 
Um, and, and we can, of course, have this conversation. I'm, I'm you know, I have a 50% panel female uh, panel right now. And, um, you know, we're all saying that uh, the music of dead white Europeans is somehow better than what everyone else has ever made in the history of music uh, and discounting the thousands of years of making music that happened uh, outside of that system. Right. Um, so I think anytime, you know, even as a musician that, that has extraordinary reverence for like all types of music, um, I'm always careful about how I phrase um, that uh, discussion. And I think classical musicians really should do a better job of doing that, um, that they just don't. Um, and, and there's a lot of baggage there that that's sort of just like, oh, you know, well, sure, I should listen to a pop song or like I'm in a string quartet. I should arrange, uh, you know, like some Aphex Twin song. I'm like, well, that the Aphex Twin's been on for 30 years, right? Like you're not going to reach a new audience <laughs> with an Aphex Twin song. So, um, you know, it, it, there's sort of this arrogance and ignorance that that is equal parts in, in that conversation um, that I that I find you know, problematic, uh, at best. Um, I, so. I agree. Yeah. This, um, sorry to uh, interrupt, but the superiority you mentioned, that's something that I face this every day. I'm a classical musician, but I teach children and, uh, they are, they have this understanding of classical music being, you know, polished and education that's the, the, if you want to be educated, you have to go through this path of classical music, not knowing anything else. Although probably they have never heard a single symphony in their lifetime, but that's their mindset. So, so did the classical music market themselves very well in this country? Is that is that why people have this kind of mindset? And I also have a problem with the fact that I'm a teacher. Okay, I'm a classical pianist too, but I make a living by teaching piano and I love it. But teaching piano sometimes is considered to be something secondary and, you know, hush, hush. When I came, first came to New York 10 years ago, or, oh, sorry, 13 years ago, oh my gosh, oh, 15, yeah. And then um, it was like this, oh, so you teach, oh, you know, as a pianist, oh, you teach that kind of mentality. So, you know, the artist started to having to have this two different almost persona. One is the pianist, one is the piano teacher. So where does this superiority and inferiority come, come from? I'm just, you know. Uh, I mean, yeah, this is, these are such great points. Um, you know, I, I think, I think there's some real speak and, and, and there's a lot to unpack there, but there's, there's some like, sort of things that we have to get out of the way um, when we talk about classical music as um, as a thing that functions in an, a modern musical economy, right? So classical, the, like the entirety of the classical musical industry accounts for about 2% of total revenue of the music industry. So anytime we're having a conversation about why is why or why not a symphony is succeeding or failing or why or why not a Juilliard grad can get uh, a job? I mean, we have to acknowledge that <laughs> it's two percent of. I mean, we're a consumer economy, right? It's two percent of the industry, um, and we have to be real about that. 
and recognize that a that's uh, something we have to work against, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that within this very narrow two percent slice of the industry, there is intense competition for a limited number of audience members and a limited number of funds. Yes. Um, and and that's just the reality of the industry. Like we keep waiting for like some magic thing to happen where suddenly classical music becomes 10% of the industry. Mm -hmm. And that's something we have let happen as a culture. We've let it happen um, as, as consumers, but we've also been uh, very, very complicit and uh, in, in, I think accelerated as, as classical musicians. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it, it, it breaks my heart that, you know, a, a lot of musicians that I went to school with um, and, and this is like, we can talk about the, the non-musical benefits of being a well-earned musician. And like a big one of them is people skills, right? Like classical <laughs> musicians go off in a practice room and they work for hours and hours and hours um, by themselves to produce a product. And then they present that product in a place where they're not allowed to be human beings. They're not allowed to have opinions or have conversations or talk or much less improvise or experiment or try new things, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then they present that in an extraordinary fourth wall stuffy environment and people politely clap and never in between movements and then they leave and we wonder why like that's dying because I can go to a rock concert and I can feel a kick in my chest, right? I make this mm -hmm. elemental connection with the people around me. We're all experiencing part of the same thing. There's a light show, right? There's like a set list. Performers are directly connecting. I just like the first concert I saw um, when the regulations uh, lifted was Brandy Carlisle, right? So I went to um, our local big, and if, if you guys haven't seen Brandy Carlisle or listened to Brandy Carlisle, you should listen to Brandy Carlisle. Brandy Carlisle is an incredible uh, singer and songwriter. She has a voice that you know, as soon as she opens her mouth, it just makes you stop doing anything you're doing and listen. Mm -hmm. um, and she makes music uh, with uh, with the Hanseroth twins. So two identical twins uh, who sing impeccable three-part harmony with her and, and play guitar and bass. Um, and just, you know, being in an audience with about 6,000 people there and watching three musicians have 6,000 people in the palm of their hand. Sorry, I have to edit myself. Um, the entire time, you know, uh, seeing people have amazing uh, personable uh, reactions, right? Seeing people cry, seeing people cheer, seeing people laugh. Um, that's what it means to be an audience member um, when you're in music, right? Like, and, and to experience a concert. And we've gotten so incredibly far away from that experience. Uh, I'll leave you with one, like one quick story. My wife and I are big hikers, and uh, before all this, like we every year we'd go uh, to Europe and do a, like a big um, cross trek. And uh, a few years ago, we were in Italy, but we were passing through Verona and realized like, oh, if we stop a night in Verona, we can go see an opera, right? So we think about opera here, and we go to the Met, and it's an incredibly stuffy affair, and only the rich people go, and we dress up, and uh, we hold our pinkies like that, and we leave right after the first intermission because we're bored and we want to go back to our uh you know apartment um <laughs> so uh opera, right opera there uh starts in the verona amphitheater which is a you know ancient amphitheater where they used to do uh circus fights and you're sitting on stone uh, granite steps uh they start the opera at uh, around nine o'clock just as the sun is yep. setting 
Um, tickets are about 20 bucks. And, uh, you know, at baseball games, you have people uh, selling like hot dogs. So those people are there, but they're selling glasses of wine and gelato and sandwiches. And you're hanging out and people are talking. Uh, anytime there's an aria, people are yelling and screaming and clapping. Uh, it's this huge spectacle where they're like live horses walking on stage. Uh, at one point, we saw Aida. At one point, there's a choir of 16 harpists on stage. I mean, so it's this huge, epic sports spectacle. Everyone knows the music. Everyone has a connection to it. But also people are having conversations with their family in the middle of it, right? Like during the wretchets when it's a little quiet. But then like, okay, uh, 20 extras are going to go backstage uh, behind the theater and light torches so that as the sun sets, the torches are the lights for the stage. And everyone goes, wow, oh, wow, how beautiful, right? Like they are chiefly aware of making a spectacle and entertaining a large group of people. Um, and they're being honest about that and open about that. And that, that was, I mean, we were up until 1 a.m. And then we went with a bunch of Italians down at like the local bar and got drunk, right? And like, where is that experience in the States? It doesn't exist. And we don't have that connection. And, the, and I know it's part of its culture, right? Like we haven't maintained that culture. We're a new culture. We haven't right. carved that out for us. Um, but that seems to me to be a very convenient excuse. I don't think classical musicians have frankly bothered to, to work hard enough to create those kinds of experience or really have seen value in doing so. You know, like most classical musicians I went to school with want to go, uh, you know, to an annex of Carnegie Hall and play a concert for people who don't clap between movements right. and put it on their resume. And like, <laughs> we wonder why it's, Honestly, like the question I would pose, not the class, like why is classical music dying? It's like why is how have we been able to keep it alive for this long? Right. You know, so the classical thing. music not being integrated into our daily life in this in this con uh, in in America, right? We're all Americans here, so we can talk about. It. But so then, um, I, but when when I used to live in Florida, my friends took me to. Uh, bluegrass concert or blues and then the situation was completely different as in people are really enjoying themselves immersing themselves into music and clapping and enjoying their drinks outside and um really uh, so the music was so alive and the musicians were uh, directly communicating to the audience and there was this amazing connections to one another so and then honestly, and Eric and Clara and I tried to do that uh, last uh, spring uh, by doing the live stream concert. And um, I think classical musicians should do that sort of uh, audience engaging concerts more. Yeah. And, you know, and it's like it's one of the I absolutely agree. And it's one of those things like like anything else, you have to practice at doing it and you have to suck at it. Right. Like the first time you're on stage and you're performing your own music and you have to like practice audio audience banter in between songs like you suck at it. You say stupid things. You say, um, there are weird changes. The first time you play with a guitarist, you're like, oh, oh, they have to tune. And I now I have to fill time. Right. right. Like uh, you then you notice like you do this thing and you go to enough concerts, you go. Oh, okay. It's like, have any of you uh, seen like the same artist um, multiple times, like a same, like a, a commercial music artist perform at multiple times? 
-hmm. you'll notice they tell the same stories. Their banter that seems very off the cuff is very planned, you know? And once you realize that, you're like, oh, okay, so that's what I need to do. I need to plan how to do that. Um, I listened to a, a great podcast called the Working Songwriters Podcast um, that uh, uh, Joe Pug hosts, and, and he brings a lot of people on, and sometimes people who have had very long and distinguished careers. Um, he asks a series of questions, and some of them are, 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 are the same questions, but I, I really like it. It's a very like long-form, deep-dive uh, about what it means to be an industry musician. And, um, you know, uh, uh, one of the things that always comes up is like every single one of those great musicians that are now part of acts that fill auditoriums have played bar gigs where there was literally no one in the bar. There were zero people there and they played an entire two hour set to no one, right? It's so like they've had those experiences and they've learned from them and they've grown from them. They've gone back and like, okay, here's what we need to do differently. Like, here's how we need to change it. Here's how we need to pound pavement, you know? Um, and I don't, I don't see that happening. And I think you're absolutely right. Like, great, we're gonna do a live stream and three of our friends are gonna show up. Okay, next time let's do better. What can we do differently? Can we do a sponsored absolutely. post? Like, yeah. you know, when I do a gig, like, Again, like my, I try to gently um, convince even my own classical colleagues who like know the crazy person that I am, you know, at my institution, like we'll do a piano faculty concert and like we won't do a sponsored post and maybe we'll do a couple things on the website and like maybe we'll do a press release in the newspaper that no one reads um, and maybe 40 people will show up at the audience, you know, and they're mostly our friends. Like when i do uh i'm doing a, a jackson brown tribute um next month uh, if you don't know jackson brown's music you should know jackson brown's music it's deeply incredible music uh he's still making music he's on tour right now he just put out a record last year he's 72 years old he still sounds beautiful um and uh he's a fabulous uh piano player and some of the great session musicians of the last 40 years have been a part of his band um so uh, it, it's like always been a dream of mine, right? So I put together this crazy eight person band and we're all super invested in the material and we've learned everything. Um, and we're doing our sort of first show and you know, the venue is like intentionally small. It's only about 150 people. Um, and so like, this is gonna be our first run so that we can take it to Buffalo and Syracuse and, and different markets. Um, but like we uh, have, already begun a pre-sale, right? So every band member has 20 tickets that we're all responsible for, for moving to our friends, right? Wow. And then once that pre-sale is done, like we have a hundred people that we know are gonna show up to our concert. They've already committed financially. And then we're gonna do radio spots. And then we're gonna do uh, Facebook like targeted ads. And then we're going to do a series of videos that we're going to release, right? It's like little teasers from rehearsals. And like, this is a whole thing that we do because all of us have done this thing before and we know what gets butts in seats, right? And we're all willing to do it. Um, and so, you know, I'll play a classical concert and 40 people will be there and they'll like politely clap yeah. and then I'll leave and I'll be happy because I made music with good people, right? But I'll also feel... Uh, sad that I couldn't make this moment happen. I couldn't, I couldn't bring people together to have a collective experience. Right. Oh. And then I'll go to yeah. a venue where everyone's having uh, a drink and a nice meal. 
and uh, there'll be 150 people there and it'll, it'll be packed and it, you know, will smell like a concert and people will cheer and I'll play songs that have been the soundtrack to people's lives for 40 years. Well, maybe and, we can just, uh, we have to start to introduce drinks into classical concerts. I don't yes. know, you know? Yay. <laughs> and then we are taking notes <laughs> here, Josh. Uh, sorry to interrupt. I actually, oh my gosh, this is such a wonderful uh, conversation. You know, when you were talking about the experience you had in Europe, I just actually came back from a month long Europe trip uh, yesterday. Uh, and uh, I flew in from Italy, but you know, with all the COVID restrictions, um, Everything is a little different. I was only able to go to one little outdoor concert, you know, smaller, quite similar, but with a different touch, you know. So I, as I'm, you're talking and I'm thinking, you know, this is something. I think it's not only that when we are, when you are talking with, with your friend responsible for these 20 tickets or something. Sure. But that's also a skill that as musicians, sometimes we just, uh, we don't have, you know, like we, we go through institutions, we go through like our music schools. And I remember fondly, like I, I came here from China when I was 17 and I went to Kansas and, you know, our concert hall is the same size as Carnegie Hall. And every single recital, I mean, it's booked every day, but every recital, there's like maybe 50 people, you know, a hundred people shows up. And I had to convince my mom to come here from China to cook for everybody. So finally I had like 300 people show up in my, and it was like the most people, but I think it was really for her food. So, I mean, with all that, and I'm curious to know, since we do all teach children, I, you know, over the years, I have had some interesting ideas with, um, how to approach, right. Teaching children, like how to, I wouldn't want to say, um, you know, brainwash them but I also want them to understand classical music is not just for old people not just for grandparents right it's just something they can enjoy with their friends so what is your philosophy on this that's what I'm most curious and uh, what is what do you think the difference like if you're going to explain to a child what's the difference between like fine arts classical fine art versus entertainment, right? Because sometimes like the teenagers, they rather go to a BTS concert than go to Carnegie Hall, right? And what's your take on that? Um, I don't make a distinction. Mm. So I, I'm very upfront with, with not only the, the college students I teach, but the children I teach that I only teach music that I love and I only teach music that sort of passes this test of being able to communicate something to me. And I know that seems really silly but like yeah in a method book i won't teach half the pieces in them because i don't think they have musical merit you know i don't want to play them i don't want to sing them um and uh i don't ever play the duets that are written in the book because i can improvise ones that are better and more meaningful and more applicable to the student that i'm sitting in a room with right mm. so uh i don't make a distinction you know no distinction was ever made to me um, I think the most important thing I can do is provide my students with a model of musicianship and provide them with access, right? Like yeah. I inherently believe as I did as a kid that like, oh, you know, come on, like you're going to hear a Chopin Nocturne and like not, not like reach someplace in someone's heart, like their 17 year old breakup with their first girlfriend. Like it hits you in this place that's deeply uh, fundamentally uh, emotional and accessible. 
Um, you know, and that music for all the complexity we give to it is incredibly simple music. It's a beautiful melody with great chord changes. It's a pop song. I mean, that's what Chopin is, you know, it's a melody that's great that you hear over and over again. And um, we make this, I think this like really early on, this completely arbitrary, unnecessary, and elitist distinction between classical music and all other types of music. Um, so, you know, the first thing I, I, I get to do with my students, um, you know, obviously with COVID, I haven't met new students uh, in a while and young students, but like, I get to know what they like and what they listen to and what they love. And I get to sort of like gently steer that, which is an incredible responsibility uh, as a teacher. You know, I can, I can open a door to, to music. And uh, I've been doing this long enough that I think some of my, some of the things that I'm most proud about um, with students I've worked with, I, I just got coffee with a student who's finishing up at Tisch um, as a, um, a filmmaker. And uh, I taught her uh, piano from the time she was seven years old, right? And um, she's like, of course, become this just beautiful, amazing uh, human being. Um, but like, she's sitting here just sort of casually telling me like what she's been listening to and what she's going to concerts to. And we're talking about, um, you know, we're talking just like, free flow talking about classical music and talking about R&B uh, and talking about Kendrick Lamar and talking like all the concerts she's been to since she's been at the city. And I'm like, this is all stuff I love. Like, mm. she's like, yeah, you're the reason like I love music. Like I listen to music all the time because of you, because of the things that we did in lessons, you know, it's so and, important. Like, yeah. who cares right. if she never plays piano again? Mm -hmm. Like, if she is, if music is a narrative to her life, um, then I've done something good, yeah, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, I know that's a, a very like uh, uh, a obnoxious answer to your very simple question, but, um, oh. but, but I, I think it, you know, even like in those, uh, when I teach pedagogy, it's, it's, mm. a, it's a point I make that like, this is your opportunity to broaden and not restrict what mm -hmm. music is or is not. Um, and you need to take that, that opportunity very seriously. You know? This concludes part one of our interview with Josh Massico. Tune in next time to hear about some of Josh's own artistic influences, his advice for young musicians, and his thoughts on creating a more musical society.